Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where you take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the 49-week challenge reading plan. And uh, if you want some physical copies, we don't, we don't got them because we're... Well, we have them. Let's be honest. We have them. We just don't have an ability for you to come and get them. But we still continue. We are still doing this podcast. And uh, if you have questions, we want to spend some time every week answering a couple of those questions. So feel free to send them in at infogrove.church or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page. We have a campus in Marysville and Snohomish, Washington. Would love for you to uh, send those questions in direct message via Facebook if you want to. While you're there, give us a like. Give us a thumbs up. You can stay privy to all the things Grove Church just because we know you want it. So you should do it. Absolutely. Uh, this week we are doing a deep dive into the book of James, uh, which will be really fun. So Jesus' brother, as we know. So it'll be... Uh, yep. Yeah. It'll, and, and it's... I don't want to, I guess, to get too much in the book because we're going to talk about this in the intro. But it's a really uh, densely packed book. And so it's kind of a cool one to be able to just kind of pick out highlights from. In the yeah, for chapters. sure. Um, as far as resources today, though, we're using the ESV Study Bible, Logos Bible Software, the Essence of the New Testament, a survey by Elmer Towns and Ben Gutierrez, and the New Testament in its World by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird, um, yes. and also The Wars of the Jews by Flavius Josephus. Um, and yeah. side note, Evan was so excited for this oh, yeah. resource. He, he texted me. He texted me when he gets really excited about something, but he texted me saying, "I get to use my, this resource." So he, he's years, super stoked. Years ago, I had. Um, an older, an older relative who was a pastor passed away. Um, and so basically he told all of us like, Hey, just go through my library. And like, if you like something, go for it and then just donate the rest. And so we went through it and I picked out, uh, the life works, the life and works of Josephus. And I thought that's just super cool, but I haven't used it in like years. And then this question came in and I was like, what? So I busted it out and I got to use he sneezed a few times because he had to get the dust off it, but well, you know. it, it's worth it. But it worked out. Uh, but we'll get to that when we get to the Q&A portion a little bit later. As far as the background of James goes, um, James and Jude were Jesus' stepbrothers. Um, and then, so that's interesting. another interesting fact that I was doing, uh, that I found out when I was doing research on this, is I knew that James was actually Jacob. So for whatever reason, when it got... Um, translated into English, some of the New Testament names were changed to Jacob. And I say some because um, Joseph, I believe, his father is still rendered as Jacob in the in the English, um, in like the Wycliffe translations and stuff like that. But Jacob, the brother of Jesus, and then Jacob, the son of Zebedee, and Jacob, the son of Alphaeus, are all rendered as James instead. So kind of interesting. And then Jude is actually Judah. So uh, they're both named after uh, sons of Joseph which is kind of interesting because we'll remember that not sons of Joseph, sorry, sons of, uh, sons of Jacob. One is named Jacob. Jeez. One is named after a son of Jacob. I'm just messing this whole thing up. They're both named after patriarchs is basically the point. So it's kind of an interesting, if, if you're confused, that's okay. I'm just as confused, but we're just going to go with it because he's the smart one and I'm the great uh, t- commentator. We'll be referring to him as James because that makes it yes. easier. But I thought you might want to know that his real name was Jacob because you know, that's an interesting idea. Uh, and then one interesting fact is that they were not on board with Jesus's ministry in the beginning. Nope, they weren't. And when we read through the gospels, um, this verse is in Mark three twenty one, and then uh, we're going to skip ahead a little bit to 31 to 35, but it says, and when his family had heard it, this is Jesus's family. They went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Uh, and his mother and brothers, brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and brother are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and brothers for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So the idea is that, and it's interesting too, because it raises the question of like, how was Jesus behaving? Um, when he was younger, because there's clearly either, it, it, I guess it's it, it's implied, um, or we infer that Jesus is not claiming that he's the Messiah, that he's that he's God in the flesh, up until it's the, the time for him to begin his ministry, that this isn't something that he's been saying um, all of his life. But um, we are going to see something clearly changes. So we get, we know that uh, 
uh, James and Jude and Mary are kind of like, what is Jesus talking about? But then all of a sudden, after the resurrection, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, uh, Paul actually tells us that he appeared to James uh, first and then to the other disciples after he had rose again. And what you see, and this actually I think is a really powerful um, apologetic tool, I guess, or a, a way to show that the resurrection actually happened. Because here you have Jesus' family who's saying like, whoa, Jesus, calm down. And all of a sudden, something clearly happens and changes to where mm-hmm. now they're all willing to go die for him. Um, yeah. So in, in Corinthians, we get this this small little passage that just says that uh, Jesus appears to James um, after he was crucified. Um, I don't remember if James is at the cross, but certainly Mary was, and, um, and she's, she watched her son die. And then all of a sudden, he, he reappears to the family. And then James goes on to really be one of the, the major leaders of the, uh, of the first century church um, in Jerusalem in particular. Um, it's funny. Cause we talked about last week, how Peter is kind of the man in charge at first in Jerusalem. And then John eventually separates out um, and kind of takes on his own, his own role. And the same thing kind of happens with James where Peter leaves and he goes on missionary journeys. And then James mm-hmm. is kind of the one who is, uh, is in charge of Jerusalem. And in fact, it's funny, I'm reading through Acts right now, um, just just on my own. And uh, when Paul, I just didn't notice it before, but when Paul goes back to Jerusalem on his way to Rome, so he does all of his missionary journeys, and he feels like God is, uh, the Holy Spirit is prompting him to, to go back to Jerusalem. And so when he goes to Jerusalem, it's actually James is the one uh, is the one that he meets. And then James is the one who says, like, hey, let's go to the temple, all these different things. So uh, James is clearly, you know, he's kind of a big deal. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's pretty significant even to 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 I mean highlight the simple fact that James and 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 his brother were not on, in in sync with with Jesus. I mean, there's a point where Jesus even makes a statement where it's like he, a prophet's not welcome in his hometown, and there's so much more conversations there. But he's also referring to the fact that he's being rejected uh, by his family, by those closest to him, yeah. to where it's I'm going to go do ministry where I, I people are receptive of me. So even his family isn't receptive of him and. Uh, and then the moment comes, you know, after his death and resurrection that you find this, um, this 180 degree turnaround, this resurgence of faith and leadership. And, you know, James takes this very seriously. And, and even you re- as you read through the book of, of James, it's, this is a book that I always refer people to who, man, I just, I just, you know, I just, I need a book of the Bible to read, especially when I was a youth pastor, I'd tell students to read this book all the time because there's so much packed into it, but um, it's just a pretty significant thing. And you see it coming from this turnaround experience um, and encounter with Christ, not just Jesus, the brother, um, but Christ, the Messiah. And so um, even, I think even in, in the book of James, as I was reading up on, on just some different things, uh, the word Christ is no longer a title, it's a person there's a shift in James's understanding of Christ. The Messiah is someone to come. It's a title to give someone. Now it's a person. Now it becomes personal. Um, and I think you see that dynamic, you see that change. Um, and it was really, really significant. You find that in the book uh, yeah. of James here. So, well, it's James is often called the, um, the new Testament wisdom literature, um, which is kind of, which I think is actually kind of apt. I mean, it obviously is an epistle. It's a letter that James is writing, but when you're reading through it, um, and I was watching, uh, I think it was the Bible project, their video on James. Um, but they're talking about how it's interesting because what you see in James is it kind of has echoes of Proverbs, but also echoes of, um, the sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You see like, you will, and it, I mean, James grew up with Jesus. And so he's probably familiar with these different, uh, these different things. He's certainly familiar with Proverbs. And so yeah. it's, it's interesting that his book kind of reads, um, almost like a meshing of those two styles. Um, but yeah, so, and we'll, we'll get into a lot of, you'll, you'll see there's echoes of Proverbs, there's echoes, echoes of Job and Ecclesiastes, um, all throughout James. And so we'll, we'll point mm-hmm. those out when they're there. Cause they're, they're, they're fun to see. Um, and then finally, I guess, before we dive in, as far as dating the book, uh, we know that James was martyred in AD 62. So it was before that is when the book was written. Um, and then we have it's it's also commonly dated to the mid 40s and the reason for that is um it doesn't mention anything that takes place um it must have taken place before the apostolic council of jerusalem since none of the issues were addressed in this letter so that's i think it's 8048 is when that council was and so 
because of that, normally James is dated in the early to mid forties is when it's written. Um, if you don't mm-hmm. care about the apostolic council thing, then you could date it to like the late fifties if you wanted to, but somewhere, um, you know, which for an ancient document, that's a very narrow period of time when it could have been. Written. It's true. Very, very, uh, so good deal there. And then finally, um, as far as the breakdown goes, I was looking through some different outlines, but I think just because it's a short book, we can just kind of go chapter by chapter and just pick out some highlights. Um, you know, it's not like, yeah, this is a book you could probably read through from start to finish in about 30 minutes, depending on how fast of a reader you are. It's not a long book at all. Yeah, I did. Um, a read through with highlighting and, and like seeing passages that stuck out to me. And like you said, in about 30 minutes. So it's, it's a shorter one, but um, yeah, like it's so said, good though. Very it's dense. Fast. It's a good deal. Uh, all right. So chapter one, um, a couple highlights that stood out to me. I love um, the way James introduces himself. So he introduces himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and so we know that, um, James is Jesus' brother, but that's not really the title that he chooses to use. He chooses to mm-hmm. declare himself a servant of both. And even Jude, um, when we read that, he, Jude doesn't say that he's a brother of Jesus. He says that he's a brother of James. Um, and so we know that he is also a brother of Jesus. But both of these, both of these guys clearly understand that um, their ultimate identity is not in being Jesus' blood relative, but in being a servant of Christ. And so I think that's yeah. a, really cool, a really cool shift that we see. Yeah. And I think it's significant to realize that. I think even as you look at Paul and you look at all these other, you know, authors of scripture, the way they perceive themselves is through the lens of, I, I serve God. I'm here for not to glorify my own name or my own position. Um, that there really are taking this humble uh, position um, to, to keep the focus on what, who it needs to be focused on. Um, and, and it's interesting because I think oftentimes I find myself when I'm reading different passages and talking about different passages, I, I, I oftentimes pause and say, okay, how, how do I align with that? Because I do believe this is a biblical practice that all of us need to fall follow, follow into alignment with, but every personal perspective is simply, uh, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Christ and Lord Jesus Christ. Like I'm, right. it's, it's, I no longer, I, I mean, Paul says that I no longer exist. It's Christ in me. I died with Christ and now it's Christ in me. Um, and so it's, it's understanding that perspective um, that he even refers to here in a minute in the same chapter. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a humbling thing. It's a challenging thing, but I think it's, I love the fact that James, who was in opposition to his brother, his stepbrother um, is now, nope, I'm a servant, half brother, whatever. It's all the, it's all the same to me, but um, that's really arrogant to say, but um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I just think it's important to, to highlight that and remember that. Um, because it does, it's a testimony of his, his turning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you, you kind of alluded to some different perspective things, but I think one of the, one of the things, one of the themes that you see, um, all throughout James is this idea of keeping the right perspective, which is also a thing that you see in wisdom literature. Remember, uh, Job is all about essentially keeping God's perspective. Um, so is Ecclesiastes in the light of, you know, in the light of mortality, keeping God's perspective. And so James in the second and third verses, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the idea there is really just the first century church was really going through persecution that um, we in America can't really understand. Um, at least, you know, we in the, the world that we live in now, at least like Western culture, um, Christianity is not really oppressed at all. Like maybe there's some people that don't like us and there's some court cases or whatever it is, but uh, no one's actively and with the government's blessing uh, coming and breaking up church meetings and, uh, and killing people and taking them and, and you know, taking the Coliseum or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. The church at the time of James is really is going through an intense persecution and, and James's response to this is not, um, well, Hey, God's just going to make it all go away. But his response really is like, you know, keep in perspective that keep an eternal perspective. Remember that this life is not all that there is and that the, the producing of steadfastness through, uh, through trial is, is something that we can, um, that we can revel in, I suppose. I, that's a weird yeah. thing to say. I was trying to think of the right one, but no, I, I would say though, too, is like, I think it's this, this passage is a little bit more prevalent for and mostly us in Washington. So I'm trying to track stuff with COVID and, you know, our governor shutting some stuff down and there was some concern, you know, I've heard different reports and concerns about like, 
well, the church, man, he's going to shut the church down. He can't do that. And, um, and, and it's funny because I, it's on one hand, like, is there a point where this will happen? World history has shown us. Yes. There's a point where this can happen. Um, but I, I do love, and I appreciate that the whole idea that James is reminding us is to, um, is to, to understand from an eternal perspective. Um, I used to say this and I, and I still hold tightly to it, but you know, as the world grows darker, which it is, because it's drifting further and further from Christ. And, and I think that's even biblical. It shows the trajectory of, of the world as we know it is away from Christ, away from God. Um, but as it grows darker, that light shines all the brighter. And so as a church, whether we get to meet in a physical building, whether we get to meet in a drive-in facility away, or we get to meet digitally and online, um, I think it's important to remember, like consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because um, there are certain things that God reveals and allows us to understand and trust through it. So, um, yeah, I think that it's funny cause I think, especially for Washington, cause I've, I've, I live in Washington, Evan and I live in Washington. And so all of the Washington, you know, pushing all the Washington feedback and, you know, the us versus them political stances. And, uh, it's just, it's more prevalent in my face. So I don't know what, what's going on in your, in your state where you're at or your country where you're at, but there is a point where the government can oppress, um, but it's it's not necessarily time for, to revolt. It's time to to lean in all the more to to Christ and being discerning and wise. So, and that's what I love about this passage. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's also uh, James reminds us. I, I didn't write down the exact verse, but um, to paraphrase, it's basically ask God for wisdom, and that really does echo, um, like we said, themes Proverbs. In Job. <laughs> yeah, themes in Proverbs, themes in Ecclesiastes. Where's where's wisdom found? Um, I love that one that poem in Job, where it's just like smack in the middle of the book and it's like where can wisdom be found and he talks about you know where you can find gold and iron all these different things but wisdom is found yeah in god um and so james is echoing that theme for sure and then finally i guess one of not the most famous passage in james i would guess but one of the more famous passages uh in james is know this my brother let every person be quick to hear slow to speak slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls but he who does the uh but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves which that really could have been right out of proverbs <laughs> it's it's kind of it's so true the structure that it's written at um and oftentimes what you'll see, and what we'll talk about this a little bit later, is James will quote Proverbs and then also add in his, uh, his own wisdom later, which is kind of a fun little thing. But there's an example of that coming up. So that's what Dude, that passage in and of itself is challenging. Be quick to sin, so to speak. I'm, uh, I'm very this goes for Facebook posts yeah, and Twitter. I'm, I'm very famously quick to anger um, and quick to speak. And so um, for, for me, maturity has looked like... Um, Every time I, I get angry and want to talk, just like, no, I haven't calmed down. Just like, take a second, breathe, and then think about what you want to say, um, which has been helpful because a lot less people yeah. don't like me now. So, you know, it's... it's Evan, I never liked you, just, oh, just for the record. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so moving on to chapter two, uh, and we're just kind of, kind of it, again, like with this book, it really is an easy read as far as um, it's not even like, you know, like the poetic books where they're a little bit more complicated. Um, and so we're really just picking out highlights. Most of it is yeah. explanatory. Um, and I, I, as always, I just encourage you guys to grab, if you don't have a study Bible, get a study Bible, um, get a good one. And then like, we always recommend the ESU study Bible, but there's a lot of them out there that are. Um, I like the life application one too. Um, ESV is really good. It, I mean, it helps with a lot. Life applications are another really good one as well. So I like the New Living Translation because it's easier to read than the ESV or even the NIV sometimes. So, but it's more of a it's a partial paraphrase translation thing. King James Anyways. or bust? Just kidding. <laughs> uh, James. Hashtag the now. So in chapter two, uh, James gives uh, wisdom that is equally applicable today. Is what I wrote. And so in James two one through four, it says, "My brothers." Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothing comes to your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions amongst your, among yourselves and become judges with equal thoughts? which I love it when there's um, ancient passages, like this was written almost 2000 years ago. 
Mm -hmm. it's, it's still equally applicable of don't favor. Um, and, and you can sub in the words rich and poor for really anything you want. Um, but like, yeah. how many times do we see someone walk into the church, um, maybe not dress the way that we would, that we would dress. And all of a sudden you're just like, well, I don't know about that person or, wh or whatever it is. And, and James is really calling you out for that, calling us out. Um, and that we should never treat anyone differently um, because of their status or because of what they're doing. So there you go. The gospel is for everyone. not just. Well, and I love the fact that, I mean, and, and you said this, I think with the last section, man, like this is probably a pretty famous passage. Uh, but I, I really do think as you, as you read through James, you're going to find the passages are, are probably some of the most often quoted by Christians and by pastors. Um, even like, you know, be doers of, you know, don't just be hearers, but be doers of the word or, yeah. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I just think that's, it's because the, the lines are so simple. That's the beauty of Proverbs. That's the, you see this, this, um, parallel to Proverbs because the lines are very simple to remember. Uh, I mean, you can put these quotes on signs and put them in your house's decor. Not that you want to put some of these cause they're more slaps in the face and, you know, helping us get better as followers of Christ. But, um, it's just funny. I mean, it's just, some of the things are so, so basic and so simple that it's like, oh yeah, I needed to hear that today. So there you go. Yeah, it's, you could tweet them if you wanted to. They're short enough to fit. You know, you know what tweeting is, Evan? I'm not on the tweeter, but um, I'm aware of the tweeter. Uh, and then finally, this is probably, I mean, this is, I would keep saying this. I would, I would guess this is probably the most famous James passage. Um, if it's not the most famous, it's got to be easily top two, top okay. three. But faith without works is dead is, uh, is one of the famous things that James says. Um, and, and, and also somewhat famously Martin Luther hated. And so there is some interesting, like he hated James, which is one of the, the fewer things I guess I disagree with Martin Luther on. Um, but, um, actually it was, it was interesting in, uh, in the NT Wright book, the new Testament and its world mm -hmm. it goes pretty in depth into, uh, you know, what was Martin Luther's big problem with the book and how, um, we can, we can oftentimes read modern theological arguments into the text that weren't there if that makes sense and so at the time not that we need to go super deep into this because no, this isn't probably interesting to anyone except me but you know at, at the time in the reformation um the big argument was between the protestants and the catholics as far as like well is it faith alone or is it just works and so it's easy with with that perspective to read that argument into the text when in reality um james and paul probably did not disagree on this um, it's probably just James offering like a slightly different perspective of the same thing, which is the idea that it is faith in Christ yeah. that saves, but, um, works is how you demonstrate that saving faith for sure. It, it, you know, it's the same thing of like saying, you know, if you just say to your wife, I love you, but then you never do anything for her and just treat her like garbage. But you're like, no, but you know, I said, I love you. Like, well, that doesn't, you're not really proving it. It kind of proves the opposite actually by your actions. So it's, it's very true. Yeah. There you go. And then my favorite, uh, my favorite verse in James is, it's not the most famous, but my favorite verse is James 2.19, which says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder, which is basically the idea for those saying that like, well, I believe, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. He's like, that's, that's awesome. So does Satan. Like what type of, uh, what type of a bar? And, and they shudder. Like, it's not even like they, they believe in God. Great but it's they believe in God and they're fearful of that, that revelation. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's the, for me, that's the, the, the greatest challenge that James is giving in this simple sentence alone is um, how easy it is to, to fall in, fall in the guise of belief. Like, yeah, I believe in God. I'm good. No, you're not. Like you don't even fear God in, in the midst of everything you're doing. Like you think God's going to forgive you just because you come to church and say, okay, God, forgive me. Like, no, there's like repentance is a lifestyle. It's a, so it's, it's, Dude, I love, I mean, it's the exclamation point after shudder. Like, I love it. Like, and shudder. Like, they're fearful. They, they understand the sovereignty, the power of the almighty. Um, and, uh, and we, we, yeah. So it's, I could go on and on about this, but dude, I just love that. I think that's, I think this is probably the first verse from James that I ever memorized as a, as a teenager. What, what is also interesting about it is I think it's really ahead of its time because it, it is an attack on nominal Christianity. Um, yeah. But at a time when you would think there wouldn't be very much because there was no advantage to being a Christian at this point. Like there wasn't like, um, like, you know, today um, you could argue and certainly in, in centuries past, like the, in, in recent history, but like, you know, you're talking like 20th, 19th century, um, 
being a Christian was a very positive thing. And in fact, if you weren't, you could be excluded from circles. But at, at this time, if you were a Christian, you were excluded from circles. Um, and yet, uh, I think James makes, um, it reminds me of Kierkegaard a little bit, just kind of like the arguments of like, you see these people um, in the church and they profess, you know, like I believe in God, but nothing about their actions show um, that they do. And so it's really, like I said, it's, it's just an argument that's a little bit ahead of its time. And I think it's really cool that it's yeah. included in here. So there you go. Uh, moving on to chapter three, uh, James gives a sobering reminder for teachers in the church. So me and Aaron get to read this, and it's like always super fun to remember. Um, but it says, not many of you should become teachers like others, for you know that we, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies well. Let Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And so it's kind of interesting because James gives all this advice about the tongue, right? Or this idea of like what, what you say um, carries weight. But then like it's, it's all within the context of this idea that, and if you're a teacher, like if, if you are teaching the Bible to other people, what you say is going to be judged even stricter. Um, and mm-hmm. it reminds me of, Aaron will remember this, but when I first started speaking, um, I would always get super nervous Um before I would preach and I, I'd, I'd like throw up half the time, which probably wasn't the healthiest thing. Um, I mean, for the first probably two years, bro, like as, as a youth pastor and you were one of my leaders and um, it's fun that we have this friendship so many years later and now we can talk about the Bible in different roles. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember vividly, man. It's like you would, okay, I'll be back. Oh, I know what Evan's doing. He's going to the bathroom. He's going to throw up and he'll be good to go to preach. But um, yeah, it's true. Which, I mean, yeah, not to gross everyone out, I guess, but I guess the idea there was, I just, you know, I just felt the weight of like, I need to make sure that what I'm saying is, is right. And even now, um, like part of, I guess, part of my, um, my pre-preaching routine is just to, um, like kind of lean into that nerve, those nerves a little bit, not in the sense of being debilitating, but in the sense of, you know, never forget that it's a heavy thing, um, to teach about the word of God and never forget that you should have you should have your ducks in a row. You should know what you're saying. You, you shouldn't just, um, particularly when you're um, preaching to an assembly like that, you shouldn't just have fly off the handle and say whatever you want um, because it's important. And you're, yeah. you're put into a position of authority like that. Um, you need to recognize the weight of it. So, Well, yeah, and I think it's, it's important as for anybody aspiring to be a pastor or a preacher or a leader in the church in some capacity, you are given so much influence and that influence is is yours for the taking i mean it's not god, I, I say this carefully i think god can withhold influence but i think god grants influence to those leaders but how you steward that influence is very very essential um and it is if you say something flippantly or you know i, I think of a you know some several you know famous preachers or whatever famous teachers and biblical scholars who kind of went off the deep end and they kind of yeah. they would invite you know conversation in a public setting that was never definitively definitively their doctrine or theology is just the conversation they were wrestling. And they just kind of veered way off the path because they, I, I say this carefully because I don't know them and I can't judge them, but it appeared that they, that they didn't guard and hold this loose. I mean, even in my own life, I do the same thing. Like, even as I'm reading this, I'm like, Oh, that sucks. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, Absolutely. Um, so it's just important, like as, as future church leaders, or maybe you're in the church and listening to this too, like we, we've got, to, we, we cannot shy away from the hard things, um, but we need to be grounded and rooted in truth, period. Um, and and may, may every other word fall uh, that is not biblically rooted or centered um, so that way Christ alone can be glorified in the gospel. So um, I say that. And then I say, I, I just love the tension that James creates with what we say. Um, the picture of someone who's able to, you know, that he does not stumble in what he says, um, how easy it is to exaggerate what it's, it's the verse five. So the tongue is also a small member yet it boasts of great things and it's subtle things sometimes too. It's like telling partial truths or slight exaggerations. Like I I catch my, myself and this is super minimal, but this is like where the Holy spirit convicts me often. Um, but it's when I'm telling my kid, my daughter, like you always throw a fit when your brother wants to play with your stuff. 
And then I catch myself like, no, that's not true, Abby. I'm sorry. You, there are times where it seems like you're throwing a fit more often than not when your brother plays with your stuff. And she does not always like it's over exaggerations. It's, it's subtle little tendencies in our, in our lack of awareness and what we're trying to say. And so it's just, it, James paints this very clear statement of be careful. I mean, back, do you remember, do, do you remember this old school, uh, what Christian child song, whatever, be careful little eyes, what you see, dude, that song, but be careful little, you know, mouth, what you say, like it's, it's that it's, it is that, that's specific and strategic. So anyways, we can continue on, but no, it's, I mean, like I said, it's good stuff. And like I said, like even just like leaning into the nerves, like for, for me, um, that just looks like praying, like, you know, like you kind of alluded to it too, but like, God, let, let your words come out, not my words, um, and, and whatever that may, whatever that may look like. And I just love the way that James also paints the picture, like how great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. Um, yeah. you know, think about like, it hasn't happened in the last couple of years, which is nice, but up here in Washington, we had forest fires like three years in a row. Um, mostly California's fault and the smoke traveled up here. So little jab at Cal, our, our neighbor to the South there, but um, like how small, <laughs> like a little campfire all of a sudden. You guys up. suck. No, Come just kidding. California, don't. get it together over here on the West side. We don't have any fires. Um, now there's going to be a fire. Now that I said that. But anyway. Um, well, but Eastern Washington has fires all the time. Okay. I'm going to defend California for a minute. That's where I was born. I was born in San Diego. So get off my, get off my state's back. <laughs> um, but yeah, the picture. You're lucky we're zooming this right now, not face to face. I'd knock you out. No, I'm just kidding. That's true. Um, but yeah, just a picture of a small spark can make such massive things. And how many of us, when we look at the problems of our life, um, how many of them were caused by just us saying stupid things? So it's an important thing. Um, how many probably- fights are started because we say something in the heat of a moment? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I, if, Look at my marriage. How many times do I get frustrated because of one? And I say something super, yeah. So that tongue, man, tongue has the power of life or death. Yeah, we say that's a that proverb. A little bit longer than I thought, so we'll probably let's let's move on to chapter four for the the sake of time. Uh, in chapter four, this is what I was alluding to, where James quotes proverbs, but he also adds his own wisdom afterwards. And so he says, um, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, which is a very famous biblical theme. This appears multiple times. Uh, but then James says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts. You double minded. And it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's elaborating on the point in Proverbs. So it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, and then James saying, well, here's what that means. Um, submit yourself to God. Don't think to yourself, like, I'm going to get out of this. Like, I'm, you know, I'm going to solve this issue. He's saying, submit yourself to God and resist yep. the devil and he will flee for you. That, and flee from you. That is what humility before God looks like. So I think that's a very, and I love the, I love the promise there too. He will, he will flee from you. Yeah, absolutely true. That's but true. how often do we like to submit? No one likes to submit. Ain't nobody got time for that. Submission is not a fun so, thing. That's, no. It's very Anyways. True. Uh, and then the other part for that stuck out to me was, uh, James also reminds us not to boast in tomorrow for our life is a mist. And if that sounds familiar, it's cause Ecclesiastes, it's, uh, it's kind of Evan's favorite book. It's true. It's an echoing of a theme in there. Um, just the idea that, um, our life is here one minute and it's gone the next. So there you go. Evan, I'm waiting for you to write a book on Ecclesiastes, bro. I'm waiting for that. That'd be fun. Uh, chapter five. You heard it here first guys. You heard it here first. Just saying. Um, our final chapter of the book of James, um, like all great wisdom literature, James points his reader's perspective back to God. So we saw that in the first chapter, um, and we see it again here. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Um, and the idea there is just like, and I, I think it's an important biblical theme that we've let escape us. And we talked about this a lot in, in our episode on heaven, but all throughout the New Testament letters, we see the apostles pointing towards the return of Christ as being the thing that we are hoping in, the thing that is, um, that is really, at, that, that, that's the thing that's in front of us as Christians. Um, but because I think particularly it just in, in modern Western culture, um, life is great. Like back then your life expectancy was a lot shorter. 
um, your children had a certain percentage chance of dying, like just right after birth, all these different things. Um, there, life was just so different that it, there wasn't this idea, I suppose, of like this life is great and that's all there has to be. Um, but now that, you know, I think modern convenience has taken away a lot of the struggle <clears throat> of just being human. And so now I think Christianity can kind of shift away from looking forward to the ultimate promise of, of God. And instead we just look for, we just look at right here, right now. Um, and James is kind of reminding us that no, keep your perspective looking forward. Don't keep your perspective looking down at your feet. So, yeah, so true. Yeah. And I talked about a lot about it. And when we did talk about heaven a few weeks back, but, um, it's, it, it is a lost part, a lost piece to faith today. So yeah, that's all I'll say. There you go. Uh, finally, this comes, this reminder comes after condemning the rich for having a purely earthly perspective. Um, this is the best passage ever to preach from just so you know this quick story but that was the first time you spoke on a sunday right so this is this is years ago um it's like six years ago yeah it was a while back and so uh aaron was i think you'd been a youth pastor for maybe maybe like a year that at that point and so you're asked yeah probably a year and a half yeah so you're asked to speak on a sunday and you're all excited and you got the passage it was yeah we did a series through the book of james called nobody's perfect um, it was a, it was a great series and I was kind of coming towards the end to wrap it up. I think I was three weeks from the end. Um, and my passage was, uh, this passage in James, I think it was the first six verses or the first three or like the verses, the whatever, three through six or something like that. I remember it's the first verse. weep and wail you rich, foolish. I'm like, what? Like you want me to preach on this, Nick? Come on, man. So it was just funny. Um, I, listen, I hit a home run, 1800 people got saved that I'm just kidding. None of that happened, but um, it's a tough passage, but it's, it's still part James again, calls out the things that need to be called out. So, and yeah, and I think those two passages fit perfectly together because, well, what makes the rich, um, oppress the poor or what makes the rich hoard their wealth? Well, it's having an earthly perspective and not a perspective of what is, yeah. um, so I think when you just read that one passage by itself, you're just kind of like, Oh geez. But when you read them together, you realize what James is telling them is saying like, yep. stop being so concerned with here and now be concerned with yep. eternity. Um, and then finally at the end of the book of James, we get this, um, these are the last two verses, but it says my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings someone back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, I think I, I love those passages. Um, I don't know. Cause I just have, su- I have such a heart for people who maybe were in the church and then left um, and then come back. And I think a lot of times the tendency is just to kind of write them off right then and there. Um, but Paul says something to this effect. James says this as well, but just the idea of um, we should never stop praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ to return. And we should never yeah. lose sight of how beautiful a thing it is when that happens. So, yeah, so good. Yeah, I just love that. It's it's funny because it's not really addressed anywhere else in James, but he ends with that statement, and then it's kind of like there's no goodbye or anything. It just abruptly ends right after that. Um, but I think it's a a beautiful passage to end on. Yeah, absolutely. So moving, uh, that that was our deep dive into the book of James. Again, I encourage you to read it. It's a super short read, but it's so, um, it's so densely packed and I'm sure there'll be things that stand out to you that didn't stand out to us uh, when we were reading it. And that's kind of the beauty of, um, that's the beauty of wisdom literature in general is you can have 10 different people read the same passage and all 10 of them will get, um, something different that stands out specifically to them. And that's just a, that's the great thing about those parts of scripture. I suppose they're densely packed, but they're incredibly powerful. Um, as we move on to our Q and a portion, uh, just a quick reminder, leave us a review. It helps to get the podcast out there to more and more people. Um, and it helps us just to continue to grow this community of people, not just, um, in Washington state, but really all throughout the country. Um, and even a little bit throughout the world. It's it's been pretty cool to be able to watch, uh, different pockets of people getting involved, um, and reading the Bible together. So thanks for, uh, thanks for leaving the review and thanks for sending in questions because those, we love doing this segment as well. Uh, so the first section, this is the one where I got to bust out my Josephus book. So be ready. Um, but in multiple gospels, <clears throat> and the example he gives is Mark 13, uh, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple where no stone would remain on top of another. My research suggests that this was around AD 70, which is correct. 
Uh, yet none of the gospels seem to follow this story up with C, it happened. This is, is this a good marker to show that the gospels were written before it happened? Also, was it destroyed to, the, to that level because the Romans thought that the cement included gold? I read somewhere that Josephus, the historian, had noticed this, but appear, it appears to be an unverified account. All right, so there's two questions there um, that are interesting. Okay, so the answer to the first question is actually a little bit more complicated than I thought it would be. So the synoptic gospels are all dated conservatively um, to the 60s. And so, and, and mm-hmm. part of that is just the reason we know that well, Peter died in the mid-60s, so Mark was written before that, um, because we know that Mark's gospel, at least according to tradition, Mark's gospel is kind of Peter's account as, as given to John Mark to write down. Uh, we know Luke died, sorry, not Luke, we know Paul died in AD 68, um, and so th- this is kind of a little bit of, uh, it's, it's a long-form reasoning, but Acts ends abruptly. There's no resolution to Paul's story, so we can assume, we can infer from that that Paul had not yet died. And so Acts had to have been written before AD 68, which is when Paul died, which would mean that Luke was written before that because Acts refers back to Luke as saying it's the second part. It's the second thing that he gave to Theophilus. So if that is the case, then Luke was also written before AD 68 in the 60s. Um, And then finally, Matthew's gospel makes the most sense as being contemporaneous with Luke uh, because when you look at the structure of those gospels, the way that most people say that it worked is that both Luke and Matthew take the Mark account um, almost whole, wholly and then add in their own different things. And so Luke with interviews of different people and Matthew with really um, an intense focus on how Jesus is the, the Jewish Messiah. So long story short, yes, the fact that they don't mention the destruction of the temple would be an indication that they were written before AD 70. Where this gets interesting is the Gospel of John, which is usually dated to the 80s. And so this is about 10 years after the destruction of the temple. And so I really didn't think about the destruction of the temple passage and it it not being mentioned in the book of John. And then I thought, how odd um, that John mentions Peter's death, but does not mention the destruction of the temple. Because you'll remember in that John 21 passage, when Jesus talks to Peter, there's a spot in parentheses where John says, this was to show the kind of death that by which um, Peter was to die. And so clearly John has no problem with inter- interjecting into the narrative, this is why Jesus said this. And so why would he do that with um, Peter's death, but not do that with the destruction of the temple? So you see, listener, this was a great question because it really got my gears turning. I wasn't sure. Um, and so I was looking at, well, why is the gospel of John most often dated uh, to the eighties? And so there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, it's dated that way because um, pretty much all of church tradition. And what I mean by that is church fathers who are writing about what the gospels are. They're all saying that John was written last and that John was aware of the other gospels and basically wanted to write his own account um, focusing on different things, which is why you see John is so different from the synoptics because he's purposely kind of like focusing on different parts of the story. So because of that, if the gospels are dated to the sixties, the then we can just infer that give it about 10 years. And then the late seventies, early eighties is when John would have written his gospel. The other thing is that the sea of Galilee is referred to as the sea of Tiberias in John's gospel, which is something that didn't happen until later on in the first century. And so long story short, if you want to be super conservative with the dates, you would say that the synoptic gospels are written in the sixties and that John's gospel is written in the eighties. If you want to um, infer from the fact that John did not mention the destruction of the temple to date it before eighty seventy, which I'm kind of apt to do now that I got this question, because it doesn't really make sense. What you could get say is that the gospels, the synoptic gospels were written earlier than the sixties, which there's nothing preventing that. It's just basically we, we date conservatively just because that's kind of the way it is. But if let's say the gospels were written in the fifties, um, so you have maybe Mark written in the late forties and then Matthew and Luke written in the fifties, then you could have John writing his gospel in the mid sixties, right after Peter dies, which maybe also was an impetus for him writing the, uh, writing the gospel in a first, in the first place, but before eighty seventy when the temple fell. So there you go. That's, it's a super long winded answer, but I was fascinated by it. I was like, Oh my goodness. I've never thought of this before. So 
Um, well, and, and super transparent moment. When I first read this question, I was totally off on the content of the question. So I got confused and didn't, and didn't answer it in my mind how it was actually phrased. So uh, I'm deferring totally and entirely to Evan today with this question. And besides, as you've just heard, he's a much more brilliant mind to communicate everything that he just did than me. So good job, Evan. Kudos. Oh, thanks. It's just, I, just I got, tip my hat I just, to you. I just got really interested in it. Um, and the second part, this, this part will be way shorter. shorter. Um, the passage in Josephus that he's talking about is from the Wars of the Jews, um, book six, chapter five, section two. And it says this. So he's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It says, who's now, Josephus? Josephus. If, is, if, if I'm just not jumping on the podcast, who's Josephus? That's a great. That's Why a great. should I trust them? Uh, Josephus I got is, you, bro. is a first century Jewish historian uh, who wrote about essentially the history of the Jews. And so I think he was, a he's either late first century or early second century. I don't remember when exactly he writes, um, but he's, essentially the closest historian we have um, to this time period of any repute. And there is also the reason he's really famous for Christians that there is a passage um, of Josephus where he refers to the existence of Jesus. Um, It was probably embellished by the church, which is a bummer because you, you want to see history books not be tampered with, but um, like there's a whole thing about like, uh, Jesus was a man, if it is even lawful to call it like, and it kind of goes off to like praise Jesus. That part is probably not originally Josephus, but um, the part there is a part that mentions Jesus, who he is, that he was a famous historical figure. Which um, you know, I, I don't know why people think that Jesus didn't exist, but there are there are there are groups who yeah. think that like what well, and I and I just to say this like the value of Josephus to this conversation and many other conversations is the simple fact he's a historical perspective. He's not a he's not a Christian scholar. He's not a and whether he was a Christian or not, I don't know. Uh, Evan, you may know, but what I do know is he was a historian. And so his, his writings were from a historical nature, not from a religious nature. Right. And so we're being able to use him as an extra biblical uh, reference guide for the context and the Jewish world, because that was his, that was his, his, his historical focus was the Jewish nation. So that, that's why I bring it up. Cause some people, you know, well, that's not in the Bible. Who's Josephus. And so that's, I just think it's important always to remember uh, especially if you're joining us and you don't know these questions and these things, like just understand, like we, we're not misquoting or trying to to magnify or multiply the influence of a of some other extra biblical resource. Like this is a valuable resource for the Christian population uh, and for the historical reality. I mean, the world as we know it, history is, is important to to always know. So that's why I ask. Anyways, go back to your book. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, no, that was a great aside though, because I I realized I I was just saying Josephus without explaining who the guy was. Um, but yeah, so in AD 70, the Romans invade, they destroy um, the temple, they destroy Jerusalem, really, um, which is, it's, it's, it's really tragic historically to read, to read what happened. And it was definitely this cultural shift in Judaism. There's kind of this pre and post AD 70 thing um, that happens. But here's the passage that <coughs> uh, the, uh, the listener is talking about. And now the Romans, judging that it was vain to spare what was round the holy house burnt all those places as also the remains of the cloisters and the gates two accepted the one on the east side and the one on the south both of both of which however they burnt afterwards they also burnt down the treasury chambers in which was an immense quality of money and an immense number of garments quantity of, quantity sorry of money and an immense number of garments and other precious goods that they reposited and to speak all in a few words there was an there there it was that the entire riches of the Jews were heaped together while the rich people had there built their chamber themselves chambers to contain such furniture. So there's no real reference to um, the Romans thinking that there was gold inside of the foundations of the temple. I, I, I was looking it up as best I can tell that idea first comes around in like the 1970s um, from a, from a sermon so most likely the pastor there was embellishing a little bit, which is a bummer because you don't want to you don't want to embellish on historical things. But um, we do get from Josephus that essentially they burned it all to the ground and tore it apart, um, and that they went through the treasury. And obviously, you know, Roman soldiers in general, not just Roman soldiers. You know, if you're burning down a building with a ton of gold in it, you're probably going to take a bunch for yourself. So um, most likely that's what happened. And uh, Josephus gives a pretty good account. Um, in the wars of the Jews, he gets a really good account of what happens to Jerusalem, what happens to the temple, all those different things. So if you are interested, um, 
in a, uh, a a really close hand account of those things than read through the the wars of the Jews. It's it's really good. So there you go. Finally, question two. What was power? Good, good question, by the way. Great question. That was fun. Oh yeah, that was that was a ton of fun. <laughs> uh, question two: We're power two because we're going over time. But in John eighteen, another disciple goes with Jesus while he is questioned. This isn't mentioned in the other gospels. Who was it? Is John again referring to himself in the third person, but not as the one that Jesus loved this time? Um, so really short. I'm assuming it's it's verse 15 that he says Simon Peter was following Jesus as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. Right. Just to quote the verse. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's the one. Um, from what I could tell, most people think it's John, um, and he's just not referring to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Um, but there's a few other options it could be. Um, if the, 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 the thought is that John is somehow related to the high priest, which is why the high priest was acquainted with him. So if that is the case, it could also be James. Um, cause if John's related, then James was related also. Um, so cause they're brothers. <laughs> so anyways, it could have been James. Uh, the other interesting one I saw, I don't think I buy it at all, but it could have been Judas. Um, in the sense of, but this, you'd have to read that not as Peter and this disciple went there together, but rather like Judas is just kind of curious to what um, was happening. And the reason he would be acquainted with the high priest isn't because he's related, but because, you know, he took the gold to betray Jesus or the silver. Sorry. Traitor. So, yeah, those are the kind of the different reads. I, I think it's John. That's kind of the simplest one, you know, kind of just when, when in doubt, um, think horses, not zebras. When it comes to yeah, well, and you put, I mean, you put down in the notes just to give you the credit, like verse Acts, Acts four to six, where it talked about Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of high priestly family. Um, so there is, I mean, there is for me. I think it would be, I would call him John two only because there is that connection through the high priestly family. But yeah, and yeah. so that and that verse, uh, in fairness, is is um, I'm trying to say it. John's a really common name. So there's no evidence that necessarily it's true. that is the John. Um, but we'll just say John. Yeah. If you're saying that John is related to the high priest, then that's kind of a verse where you could be like, maybe, but most likely yeah. it's just another John in the high priestly family. So there you go. Uh, that's the, those are the Q and A's for today. Really good questions. Yeah. I had a ton of fun diving into those for sure. Yeah, they were good. Um, but with that being said, we'll go ahead and wrap it up uh, for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, remember that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources and podcasts on our website at grove.church. 